Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. We've got a really educational show today. We've got Sherry Tooley, and she's the current president of the American Association for Respiratory Care, AARC. She has been a member of the association since 1982. She graduated from SNUI Medical University in Syracuse, New York. She has a specialty in pediatrics, neonatology, adult critical care, pulmonary function testing, and asthma education. During her time in the profession, she has directed several outpatient clinics. And in the spring of 2022, Sherry moved to the industry side of the profession when she joined Dagger as their senior product manager, S-T-I-M-I-T. Sherry, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. Well, you know, I think you have such an interesting background. I mean, you've worked You've worked the clinical role, you've got the education, and now you're taking more of a global uh, view of it. So, because I think that sometimes we just take our lungs for granted. And as people, just individuals, we maybe don't prioritize how important our lung health is. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of that in your years as a professional. I have, yes. You know, when we're younger, it's really hard to believe that we're not invincible, right? And so sometimes we make some choices um, that don't turn out to be good for our lung health in the long run. Um, And some of those choices, of course, are smoking, tobacco, vaping, um, and not really taking care of our lungs in terms of taking the the medications that's prescribed for us, let's say, if we have asthma. Well, I think, you know, we think of asthma. I mean, I I have some friends that have had asthma to a pretty serious state where if they don't have their inhalers, if they don't have, you know, what they call my tools to breathe, they get very concerned. But most of us maybe don't understand how how serious asthma can be. You know, that's something that you've worked in specifically. Talk to us about that. There are a lot of different factors that go into asthma and uh, different types of asthma, of course. We have Uh, asthma that is uh, really induced by exercise. So we oftentimes would see our uh, younger population of um, individuals that maybe went to school and started running in gym or were trying to exercise when it was hot and humid out, and they would start exhibiting the symptoms of asthma, and we'd bring them into the lab and test them. And sure enough, um, they had asthma. It was typically, not always, but very typically easy to control by giving them what we call a bronchodilator, a medication that they inhale into their lungs um, just before they exercise. 
Um, and if that worked, um, then we would transition them oftentimes to what we call the controller medication so that they could continue to exercise, which we also know is good for us and good for our lungs, uh, without those symptoms of asthma. Our other patients, uh, if you don't see immediate uh, relief, it's sometimes hard to understand without good education why you should take those medications on a daily basis. And a good example of that is our controller medications. And one of them is uh, steroids that are often prescribed for our asthma patients. And that is a medication along with some of our other long-acting um, respiratory medications that really need to be taken over a period of time in order to see good lasting results. So without the good education, when the medication is first prescribed for our patients, then they really don't have an understanding of how it's so important. And I'm sure many of the listeners have seen commercials that actually say this is not a rescue medication, um, but, but when they try to use that particular medication as a rescue medication and it doesn't work, that's when more serious consequences happen and many of those individuals end up in hospital emergency rooms um, because they just are having such a difficult time breathing. So really education is the key to most of what we do um, to help our patients through their days of difficult breathing with asthma. So is asthma the same thing as bronchitis? It is not. Uh, bronchitis is a more short-term um, swelling of the airways. That's where the itis comes from, right? And it is uh, typically a, a fallish, winterish um, type um, pulmonary condition that is precipitated by some irritant, let's say. Um, so when you have swelling of the bronchioles, the, that's bronch, um, that's where the the itis comes from, bronchitis, then we typically do less, um, it, it's not such a, a, an urgent, usually, uh, situation. Sometimes it's from a bacteria, sometimes it's from a virus. Um, really, only your doctor can determine what it is, um, and we, we typically talk to our patients then about really gross things that nobody wants to talk about, but what color is their sputum. So if they have um, a not so favorable color, like a green or a yellow, then they're often treated with an antibiotic. Um, and if it's not, then they are oftentimes just treated with some short-term um, symptom control and, and symptom management. Okay. So, but it sounds like it takes a professional that really understands from, from the beginning all the way through the identification 
through, you know, identifying, getting to, I think, what you call the controlled stage where they're on medication. Somebody's got to manage that process. Is that really what a respiratory therapist does? So the respiratory therapist is going to be the educator, um, not so much the the actual manager. Um, we really need to have uh, a provider, um, a mid-level provider physician that diagnoses the patient, and then the respiratory therapist works on their general orders to educate the patient about their disease and about their medications so that they can carry on their activities of daily living in uh, a really um, a positive manner and have a good quality of life. So that really is what we're always striving for for all of our patients is that they have a very good quality of life and are able to manage their medications and symptoms to get the most out of their their life. So then it would be a, a doctor that would bring a respiratory therapist into the process and get them working with the patient, correct? Absolutely. Okay, so why would a doctor do that? Why should you see a respiratory therapist? Uh, the, the doctors... Um, involve respiratory therapists because they know that we are very well versed in lungs and uh, pulmonary conditions and can provide that ongoing and sustained education that the patient needs. Um, typically, our, our physicians do not have the amount of time um, to spend one-on-one -on -one with our patients to um, continue the education. So certainly while they're doing their diagnostics, they explain to the patients what they're doing and what they believe the patient has and, and you know what they can expect. Um, but then they oftentimes will say then that they're going to be referred uh, to a pulmonary rehab or to the respiratory therapist, uh, perhaps working in their office or the pulmonary labs to explain to them more about the diagnosis, uh, treatment, and uh, the education, overall education of, of their lungs and the medications that, that they're prescribing for the patient. And most importantly, how to use those medications. So I'm sure that you and many of your listeners have seen not only the commercials, but know people who have a variety of different inhalers that all work just a little bit differently. So taking those medications the way that the manufacturer has designed that inhaler is very important so that they get the medication in their lungs. So it sounds like that the therapist will work in the hospital and outpatient clinics as well as in the home. Yes, there are a number of uh, care settings that the respiratory therapists work in. Uh, they also work in physician offices. They work in outpatient clinics. They work in sleep labs as well as the home and uh intensive care units such as the neonatal intensive care and adult intensive in the adult excuse me intensive care arenas so pretty much uh, patients with any kind of pulmonary disease can expect to see a respiratory therapist 
um, in, in their care setting. So what are the different types of pulmonary diseases? Oh my. <laughs> well, just name a few. Yeah, we, we can think of a few. So um, certainly we've already touched on asthma and we have also touched a little bit on um, COPD and um, other pulmonary uh, conditions would include cystic fibrosis, which is actually a genetic um, condition that uh, babies are born with, as well as other conditions that respiratory therapists uh, help to educate and manage um, are obstructive sleep apnea, and then many of the other um, neuromuscular diseases that weaken your pulmonary system and your ability to breathe um, as the diseases progress. Respiratory therapists work with those patients as well, not only to help strengthen, but um, perhaps in the end to manage their, their ventilators and help with their overall care. Well, it sounds like that, you know, they work with people of all different ages, uh, neonatal all the way up to adults and probably even the last years of the life. And, you know, when I think about that, I think about how, because if you don't breathe, well, number one, if you're not breathing, you're not getting oxygen to the brain or to the heart. The heart stops. So I'm sure that you've encountered some interesting case studies over the years. Does one come to mind? Um, yes, actually, um, one that is um, not only very touching, but it, very personal for me. Um, I was contacted several years ago when I worked for a durable medical equipment company. Um, they needed a neonatal ventilator for a patient that was going to be discharged home from the university hospital in the neonatal intensive care unit. And our intake people, of course, did what they do and took all the information and dispatched me to the hospital with all of the equipment that we needed for the initial visit and education. And when I arrived, I recognized uh, not only the name, um, but the dad, and I had known his family um, from where we grew up for years. I was actually the age of his older brother, um, but very much recognized uh, the, the faces and the name. And we were able to successfully discharge the baby home. We had a great relationship. His Her parents were um, very knowledgeable, very attentive, and and just uh, wonderful people, uh, not only to to work with, but really um, just the top notch in terms of wanting to get all of the education that they could get. And the heartwarming part of this story is that the dad had been in a family business, uh, for his, his entire adult life, and based on the diagnosis of his second daughter, uh, this 
young baby that I was taking care of, he decided to sell his business and go to respiratory school. And he is now a respiratory therapist. He went on to get his MBA and he has um, articulated to me that his goal is to help the people um, with similar situations and to be able to be uh, an asset to him, or I'm sorry, to them, uh, the way that I was to him. So it was a very, very touching, um, and it, it not even a, a gesture, but for, for someone to feel so strongly that they would sell their business and go to respiratory school so that they could continue to help children um, the way that his his child was helped is um, just very touching for me. Oh, that's very touching for me. And, you know, just hearing the story, because being in a business at the Brain Performance Center where we do help others, it's nothing's more powerful when somebody will go through the program and We've had we've got a couple of texts right now that went through the program and said neurotherapy changed my life. How do I get involved with this and how do I do it? And so just having that personal touch, I think, gives them an empathy that maybe others don't share. So that's that is very, very touching and and also very rewarding because, you know, people think, well, I couldn't do something like that. And yeah, you have to go back to school, but it sounds like it's doable. Yes, absolutely. It is an extremely rewarding job, and I would never lie to anyone and say that it was easy, um, right? You see um, things that you wish that you didn't see. I'm sure that's true of many uh professions, not just health professions, but uh, an extremely rewarding job. And if you can help other people um, to be able to breathe and to educate them, to be able to help themselves, uh, it is a profession that has served me very well, I will say, for 43 years now. (laughs) That's amazing. So, you know, and I know that there's that some of these diseases can be caused by genetics. You mentioned that infection, um, pollution, but aren't there some lifestyle choices that we make that can be harmful to our lungs? There are. Um, I mentioned uh, smoking earlier. I believe um, that that is probably the largest contributor, but more and more we are seeing disease, uh, irreversible pulmonary disease from vaping. And unfortunately, we're seeing this in younger and younger individuals. So with smoking, we typically see long-term damage after an individual has smoked for a number of years. That has turned out not to be so true of vaping. We are seeing some really deleterious uh, effects of vaping 
in much younger individuals and in individuals who maybe have only vaped for a very short period of time. And I think when we look at what is in the, the, the ingredients in the, the vaping solutions, um, they're, they're not controlled by any regulatory agency and they, um, can have, uh, really pretty much anything in them. Right. So we are seeing people that have, um, lung damage and, and lungs, um, while they can heal themselves to a certain extent, and by that I mean the inflammation or the acute insult can go away, once you damage your lung tissue, um, lung tissue doesn't grow back. So it is a long-term effect of um, the vaping that we have been seeing. So once it's done, you cannot go back and reverse it. No, no. You can halt the progression, but you can't reverse it. So we do um, absolutely do things like pulmonary rehabilitation to improve and strengthen uh, what we call their accessory muscles or all of the muscles that we use to breathe. And we can absolutely improve the inflammatory process um, and and do secretion management and secretion control but we cannot uh, fix uh, the lung the lungs do not regenerate mm. so there's a good reason to think about you know the lifestyle choices that we make and to understand the full consequences that they have that's that I guess that's my takeaway from from what you said. And we've got about four minutes left before we go to break. What do you think would be the three takeaways you would want our listeners to have from the first half of the show? The three takeaways, I would like people to understand that uh, smoking and, and tobacco is bad for their lungs that medication and control of asthma is essential, not only for a good quality of life, but also we do still see individuals uh, in the United States that die from asthma every year because they largely are not controlled well with their medications and treatments. So understanding um, and, and getting good education and, and adhering to your medication regimen is absolutely key. And that's something that if people understand the importance of, I think they're much more apt to do. And oftentimes, the, are the instructions on the pill bottle? Yes, they are. But oftentimes, I've heard people say, well, I don't, you know, how many times should you be taking that? Oh, I'm not sure. Did you read the bottle? Um, no. So, you know, it's just, I think a great takeaway is for people to understand the importance of really making sure that they use the medication in the right way. Because it's just like with you know, people that suffer from anxiety or depression. And I talk about how they can use their breathing to kind of calm, you calm your breath rate down, you'll calm your heart rate down. 
and they won't do it. They'll say, oh, I got really anxious and I tried and it didn't work. Well, it's not something that you can just pull out of your pocket and try when you need it. It's something that you have to fully understand and practice and know how to do it when you need it. So, and, and you know, that the importance of breath work, whether you're in psychotherapy or respiratory, it, it's important to know what it can do for the body and certainly what it can do for, for everything in your life. I think that, you know, one of the things that I hear from people that I've, I've known a lot of people have had pneumonia and they've never really, oh, it just comes in the winter. You know, it's really not that severe. So in the last couple of minutes, what warnings do you give people that do suffer from pneumonia? I, I think the most important thing, if you tell me that someone has recurrent pneumonias is really to find the root cause because it's not typical for anyone to have pneumonia over and over again. They should um, really seek out a physician or a specialist to be able to tell them um, why they keep getting these these pulmonary infections over and over again. Certainly we all get a little run down from time to time and you have, you know, some acute exacerbation of, um, let's say asthma that leads to a pneumonia because you're not doing really well with your airway clearance and those types of things. Um, but, but patients who say that they have a recurrent pneumonia every winter, um, I, I would question for them to get a, a more thorough diagnosis. Well, thank you so much for clarifying that, because I think a lot of people just don't think it's it's just a winter disease. And what you're saying, it, it's more than that. We're going to take a break. Stay with us and we'll come back and learn more. We'll be back after these messages. April is National Frog Month? Hey, I wouldn't make this up. Growing up in the country, my brother always had a frog or two in his pockets and liked nothing more than to toss one at me. What's the word for the fear of frogs? Batrachophobia. In Germany, frogs were once kept around the house as pets because they croaked loudly whenever the barometric pressure fell, signaling bad weather was coming. There are more than 4,700 species of frogs. Scientists who study frogs are called herpetologists. The name comes from the Greek word herpeton, which means something that crawls. Why are frogs so happy? Because they eat whatever bugs them. It's marching I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So we're back. We've been talking about the importance of your lungs and how important it is to prioritize lung health. 
because sometimes we all get a cold and we don't really think that's any big deal. But if we're getting, we talked about right before break, if that turns into pneumonia and you're getting that on a reoccurring basis, it's something that really does need to be looked at. And I'm surprised at how breathing can come into play. And, you know, a lot of times with people sleep, I've heard that, you know, sleep apnea has a lot to do with how they're, they're, they're breathing. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, sleep apnea um, had, comes actually in a couple of different forms. We can have what they call obstructive sleep apnea, and that really is uh, where the patient's airway closes, um, and some of the symptoms of that, um, that closes periodically, I should say, I apologize, periodically through the night when they're sleeping. And so those symptoms are, are typically manifested by a loud snoring, then a cessation of snoring, then maybe a gasp, and then they start snoring again, or they'll take a couple of big breaths, a big sigh, um, and and that pattern repeats itself over and over again through the night. Um, and so that phenomenon actually prevents your brain from getting into that REM sleep, that nice deep sleep that we need to feel rested the next day. So typically what we hear from the bed partner is about the snoring, but then from the patient themselves, what we hear is, I'm always tired. I wake up tired. I go to bed tired. If I sit down in a chair, I just fall asleep just like that. Or more importantly, and, and more dangerous is when I'm driving. I I feel very tired and I have nodded off before driving. Um, and that is a very um, dangerous and very scary um, thing to have happen. And, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes it is caused by obstructive sleep apnea that is untreated. So who's the most at risk for sleep apnea? The individuals that are most at risk for sleep apnea is patients who are um, who have a high BMI, patients who have shorter and what we call thicker necks. Um, so when we measure a man's neck around their Adam's apple, um, if it's greater than 17 inches, or if we measure a woman's neck and it's greater than 16 inches, we, and of course this is not diagnostic, but this is just one of the tools that we use to say that would put them at a higher risk. So a high BMI larger, shorter necks, um, sometimes um, um, things that can exacerbate that are um, 
individuals who have those things, but also like to have uh, an alcoholic beverage with dinner or before they go to bed, and that can make the symptoms even worse. Um, so we usually take a, a look at that. The other manifestations of obstructive sleep apnea are uh, high blood pressure um, because the um, cycle of that snoring, stopping breathing, and gasping also leads to a decrease in oxygenation at night when you sleep. So typically what we see when we do monitor them is that their oxygen saturation falls. When that happens, their heart rate goes up their blood pressure goes up. And then overall, what we see over a long-term period is that their, their blood pressure um, can also go up and is a symptom of the obstructive uh, sleep apnea. The uh, other type of sleep apnea is what we call central sleep apnea, and that's more mediated from a neurological um, perspective, from the brain. So uh, for whatever reason, and, and we're not always sure, uh, a chemical or something in the brain actually causes uh, the individual to stop breathing at night. And so that's another type of, of sleep apnea. And then the last one is what we call a, a mixed or, or complex they've gone to now where it's a little bit of both. Um, so we really do a good history and physical assessment on these patients as uh, a first step in diagnosis. But then the physician would refer this individual to a sleep lab where they would be hooked up to some monitoring equipment and be observed overnight while they were sleeping to put all of those pieces of the puzzle together to come up with, with uh, a diagnostic um, um, a, a diagnosis positive or not for obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, or mixed. You know, listening to you talk, I thought how, gosh, I mean, the body is so integrated. And I was thinking about the, your breath and the heart, because if you can't breathe, the heart can't beat. The heart just will stop breathing. And, you know, do you look at heart disease and uh, in correlation with respiratory disease? We, we don't. Um typically correlate except uh, in certain circumstances like the ones I was just um, uh, speaking to you about with the obstructive sleep apnea. It does not being able to breathe absolutely does put a strain on the heart and can lead to other, um, other conditions like the high blood pressure. Uh, if that goes on long enough, that can lead to heart failure. The, the question has always been in medicine and, and a long debated, we say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, did they have this heart failure first and that led to it or the other way around? 
And um, I think most of the respiratory therapists that I know will argue that we could um, much better control symptoms of the heart if our oxygenation status and our, our breathing um, were good. So you're absolutely right, Leah. The, the heart and the lungs are connected um, and very much dependent on one another. Well, it's it's interesting because when when you think about when I get and sometimes I've gotten like a shortness of breath, you know, or maybe I ran too fast or I was trying to catch something. I'm running out the door and, and I mean, literally trying to catch my husband before he leaves for the grocery store and I'll get that shortness of breath. That's a scary feeling when people get that. What do you encourage them to do to I mean, sit down for me, whenever I get out of whack, I like to feel grounded. So I will sit. I'll sit on the ground. But what do you encourage people to do when they experience that shortness of breath? I would say do what relieves that shortness of breath, right? So a lot of times, and you talked a little bit about this earlier, it is anxiety that creates people to have an intensified feeling of shortness of breath. And for many of our pulmonary diseases and, and pulmonary conditions, uh, those patients who go to pulmonary rehab, biofeedback and anxiety control and controlled breathing is a big part of what we teach patients to do. We, it is very important to be able to recognize that and then to be able to control your own breathing. And as a part of the education and, and a lot of times when they're so short of breath in the hospital, I would have them take both of my hands and we would look at each other face to face and I would say to them, okay, you know, do follow me, do what I'm doing in through your nose slowly out through your lips with a pursed lip or looking like fish lips, right? So if you do slowly in through your nose and out through those pursed lips, if you can do that consistently, and certainly when they first start and they're very anxious, they can't do it every breath, but the more you work on it, the easier it gets. And the more you work on it, the easier it gets. And then a lot of times what happens when people become that anxious is that they have an elevated carbon dioxide and just the mechanism of breathing in slowly through your nose and then out through pursed lips allows you to exhale more of that carbon dioxide and then your brain is more at ease and then you start to slow your respiratory rate and things become much easier. When that catches up with you, if we have practiced over and over again together how to do purse breathing, how to slow down, how to recognize when I'm becoming anxious and you can stop it before it gets really bad, patients, individuals are, are able then to do that on their own without the help of a, a partner, a respiratory therapist, or a, a rehab 
a person actually taking hold of their hands. Um, they've, they've gotten the feeling of being able to slow their breathing down by breathing through those pursed lips and, and relieving some of the carbon dioxide to really improve um, their, and, and overall improves the anxiety associated with that. Well, you know, I'm so glad we got to off talking about breathing because there's some brain facts about breathing. The first one, breathing has a well-defined input and output neuronal pathway. Any comments on that? Uh, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Our breathing is controlled um, through our, our brain, right, um, which is very evident. We, um, you know, the sensors are in our brains. It goes to our spinal cord, um, and that is what controls our diaphragm, and our diaphragm is a muscle, and that muscle uh, is is what helps um, to pull the lungs down for air to enter and then goes back up passively for uh, exhalation to occur. And depending on uh, spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, um, it, you know, that, that neural pathway is very, very important and does absolutely control our breathing and our muscles that control our breathing. I'm just amazed because, you know, breathing provides the basis for communication of emotion. It's used to mod modulate emotions and state. And we've talked about that with people with anxiety, but it's also strongly influenced by cognition. So it just shows you how we talked about how interlinked the brain, I mean, the heart and the, the lungs are, well, the brain and the lungs have got that same level of connection. Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think it's safe to say that our, our brain and our body is a pretty amazing system of networks that must all be working very well together in order for everything to work uh, smoothly in the way that it should to keep us healthy and our heart beating and our lungs breathing and our muscles working all in the way that um, they should. So uh, we have a, a pretty amazing machine, I would say. Yes, we do. And, and you know, what I've noticed when we're doing neurofeedback with a lot of people, when they're really concentrating, they'll hold their breath. And I'll see, I'll see a change in the brainwaves. Like, are you holding your breath? And then they'll have to, they'll have to let it go to answer me. Nope. And I'll see those brainwaves change. And when I said breathing is strongly influenced by cognition, that's what I meant. I mean, a lot of times we just, when we really want something to work, or we were really concentrating, we do hold our breath. I'm amazed at how many people do it actually. And you know, we've talked about the different diseases that are respiratory, but I've also read research that shows impaired breathing function and with and voice and speech disorders, they commonly occur with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, with MS, with ALS. I mean, it's, as you said, it's an amazing fine-tuned machine. You know? yeah. 
And the more we've talked about it, I, you know, you were in that role of a hands-on therapist. And then in the last years, you've kind of shifted. So you've gone to work for AARC. Tell us about that. What was your motivation? Have you wanted to change the way you reach people or was it just a, a great opportunity? What's your story? So the ARC is actually our professional organization and it is, uh, I am uh, the president uh, last year and this year, it is a volunteer position. So in November, I will turn the reins of president over to our new incoming president-elect. Um, but the AARC is an organization that I have been involved with actually since I was a student. It was, um, I, I like to tease people and say it wasn't a request of our respiratory instructors in school. Um, it was an expectation and they really wanted us to understand the importance of our professional organization and how that helps to form all types of not just education, ongoing education for respiratory therapists, which we do, and we do a very good job at it. We have uh, just all kinds of education in every specialty area that you can imagine. But we also do a very good job at educating the consumer on pulmonary disease. We do a good job at educating our patients and their caregivers on pulmonary disease. And then I think one of the things that I am the absolute most proud of is the advocacy work that we do to advocate on behalf of the individuals that have pulmonary disease. So the AARC was instrumental in the 80s for getting the airlines to no longer allow smoking on commercial flights. Wow. And we're very proud of that. Um, as you can imagine, you're in an airplane, so I, I call it you're in this little tube where air is obviously recycled. And uh, I remember the day, I don't know if you do, when you used to get on the plane and you very well could be sitting next to someone who smokes. Um, so there's, there are no longer uh, smoking allowed on, on flights, and that was largely due to the impact the respiratory therapist had on uh, airlines and at Capitol Hill. We also advocate endlessly for new drugs, new therapy, access, to respiratory therapists for patients in all care settings so that every, every patient, every pulmonary patient should be entitled to uh, the, the, the best treatment and the best care from the best qualified individuals. And we think that respiratory therapists are those individuals. We advocate for 
pulmonary and cardiac rehab. We advocate for not only the profession, but for reimbursement issues so that hospitals and freestanding clinics continue to get a fair price for cardiac and pulmonary rehab so that they can continue to provide those services to all of our patients. So as you can imagine, when reimbursement starts to fall for certain um, therapies or certain um, rehabilitation um, centers, that affects our patients in a very negative way because they make decisions to either do away with the rehab altogether or to limit the rehab uh, to certain certain pairs and in individual groups. Um, so we are certainly always looking for the best for all of our pulmonary patients. You know, it's amazing the strength that an organization has. How many, uh, just approximately, how many members are in the organization? Um, currently we have a little over 40,000 respiratory therapists that are members of the American Association for Respiratory Care. Um, we have uh, a big marketing campaign right now um, to increase our membership. There are about 160,000 respiratory therapists in the United States. Um, obviously, as the president of the organization, I'd love to see every single one of them <laughs> as a member of the organization. Um, remembering that when we lobby for the profession and when we lobby for our patients, we're not just lobbying for our particular members, right? Our lobbying benefits everyone. And so we are hoping that more individuals will seek um, membership and the benefits of membership, not just for the educational uh, components, which we know people can get education in a number of ways, and there it's all good education. I'm not going to say that it's not. Um, we have many of our external organizations and and um, our colleagues in industry that give phenomenal education. Um, but there is an added benefit to being a member of your professional organization and the camaraderie and the ability to reach out and really network with those individuals is another huge benefit um, that that people are missing out on when they're not members. Well, that's great because I was thinking we've got, you know, four minutes left and I thought, what would you say? to somebody that, you know, to encourage them to be an RT. And you pretty much read my mind there. Good job. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Um, I guess what I would like to add at this point is just uh, recognizing that we all have our strengths and weaknesses and to really work on our strengths of, um, helping one another. Uh, one of our, our big um, mottos, I'll say, or my motto after this recent uh, respiratory pandemic that we've all affectionately um, now know as, as COVID-19 is we, I, I tell the therapist now, we bent 
so we would bend, but we did not break. We came together, we supported one another, we supported our patients uh, in the darkest of times. And we need to remember that kindness is key. Do whatever you can do to help your patients, your colleagues, your coworkers, and your family and friends, first and foremost, to really have the best quality of life that they can have. And if you see something, be an advocate. Um, help them to find the right person to be able to diagnose um, particularly their, their pulmonary disease, but certainly any um, abnormality that, that people would see. Sometimes, Leah, what we need in our corner is a really good advocate, somebody that can say, that just doesn't look right to me or that just doesn't sound right to me and not just take the status quo as an answer. Well, thank you. That is, you know, that's a great thought to leave people with. And we've got a minute left. And that's just a great thought to leave people because everybody, if you see something, say something. And that's kind of a, a slogan going around right now in regards to a lot of things. But certainly if you see your a family or a friend that you can tell they're having difficulty or they're struggling Sometimes just encouraging them to get help can make all the difference or can help them stop and think about it. So for those of you that want to learn more, you can go to www.aarc.org. And there's a lot of good, good information on that website. Education, resources, the advocacy that you spoke so much about. Sherry, I can't thank you for taking the time today to talk with me and help me educate our listeners. I appreciate your time. And I appreciate you and your listeners. Thank you so much. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com.